can kind of connect them in our mind's eye to a very, very important festival that gets celebrated every year. So this is a major festival. It's known all over the world. It's kind of hosted uh, in a very, very small city. Travelers from all over the world participate in a pilgrimage, often at great expense to themselves, time, energy, money. And this city takes in a huge number of these pilgrims and it's buzzing with all kinds of new energy as these people definitely stimulate the local economy, but also create a bit of tension because there are new stressors on the social services and, and the different infrastructure of the city. You know, and obviously when I talk about that festival, you guys know that I'm talking about Shambhala. Okay, so Shambhala is a really good dynamic equivalent through which we should understand the social and relational dynamics at play moving into this Passover celebration. Now granted, the motivations for those moving towards Passover celebration might be a little different from those attending Shambhala, but uh, there's quite a bit of overlap. City of Jerusalem's not a big place. Nelson's not a big place. There's about 10,000 people who live proper in Nelson and city fluctuates to about 15 to 16,000 during the day as people come in for work. Shambhala adds about another 10,000 people in the surrounding area, but they get dispersed in the area. Uh, city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, population estimates are really, really difficult because we never know from historians if they're only counting male um, men as numbers or whether entire family units and children but let's go on the kind of median end. City of Jerusalem, 30 to 40,000 people, regular uh, attendance. And at Passover, there are widely varying estimates. But on the conservative end, 100 to 150,000 people. And on the higher end, even upwards towards a million, maybe not directly in Jerusalem, but in the surrounding area. So if you can imagine those two weeks when kind of Shambhala is occurring, if we try to absorb another, even just you know, 100,000 people into this area. So that means every home here is gonna be full. Everyone's gonna be taking in someone, maybe a family member, maybe a distant cousin in the first century, but it's just gonna be packed. The population density is going to just be off the charts. There's gonna be little tents everywhere, every square inch, getting to and from, even just moving a kilometer is gonna be uh, an enormous headache. And that is sort of, if we can kind of picture in our mind's eye, all the body odor and the sweat and the disorganization and the continual vying for, I need to get here, I need to get food, how am I gonna just do my regular life while this huge festivity is taking place? I want you to kind of picture that in your mind's eye because as we see Jesus moving into the city during that time, that's the energy that is there. That this isn't just Jesus coming into Nelson on a you know, May long weekend and it's kind of abandoned and walking down Baker Street. This place is pulsating with all kinds of kinetic energy. So have that in your mind's eye as I read the account in Matthew's Gospel. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So whenever a new king gets established, whenever a king comes into his rule, there are five elements that come together to kind of institute formally his dominion, and his authority. And these are rituals that are more or less practiced across culture, so they might get expressed slightly differently, but these five pillars are all part of the coronation of royalty. And they're a way for that culture to signify that this particular person has been um, bestowed with power and glory and often wealth and tremendous privilege and honor. And I want to talk about those five rituals this morning and how they're expressed in the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, beginning with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, but I then at the end want to move us quickly through the rest of Holy Week leading to Friday. So the first ritual that's always enacted when a king is coronated is that the king is welcomed, usually with some kind of royal procession. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, expectations were at a fever pitch. It is the Passover, and that's a time when tens of thousands of Jews from all over come to Jerusalem to take part in the Passover festival. And Passover celebrates, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, Passover celebrates God's saving of his people in Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb Lamb's blood goes over the doorstops. Angel of death wipes out the firstborn of every house who doesn't have the blood over the door frame. And then God rescues his people from a place of slavery under Egypt and leads them out into freedom under his rule and reign. He claims this people of slavery and wants to make them into a nation. And every Passover that gets celebrated after that, especially as we move towards the lifetime of Jesus, there is a greater and greater anticipation and people are more and more pumped with every Passover because at that time, Rome was in charge of everything. They were kind of like these big bullies and they had occupied the land that Israel thought, this is our land, this is the land that God gave us and now we have to pay these huge taxes to Rome on top of the taxes that we already owe God and we're okay with those taxes but Rome exploits us, we live as second class citizens in our own land That's not right because Rome isn't a God-fearing people. They're pagans. But just like God rescued us from Egypt, we know that one day God's going to send a Messiah 
to rescue us from Rome. And every year, when Jews from all over the known world gathered together in Jerusalem and came together and sang songs and prayed together and went through this Passover meal together and remembered the God who delivers you from the enslavement of pagan forces and leads you into new freedom, man, people got so excited. Is this a year? Maybe this is the Passover. Maybe this is when God's gonna do something big. And every year, because they knew that's how Jewish people thought, Rome bumped up their security. And so there was this tremendous tension within the city of Jews who were coming expectant, not just to celebrate a religious festival, but there were always murmurings of revolution. Is this gonna be the year where God overthrows the Romans? And the Roman authorities heard this and they're like, "Uh, we don't really like this too much, so we're just gonna station extra military around just to make sure things don't get out of hand. Because sometimes they would get out of hand. There were would-be messiahs who popped up every few years who said, I'm a messiah, I'm God's messiah, I'm gonna lead us into victory. And they would use festivals like Passover to try and launch coups or to do political assassinations against Roman figures. And so Rome had good cause to kind of get their backs up and get very defensive around these festivities. You had lots of Jews in one place, excited about Passover, expecting a revolutionary movement of God. So there was a lot of tension in the air. And we know what the expectations and hopes that were placed on Jesus, not by everybody, but by the majority of the crowds. Because when he enters into Jerusalem, they greet him with palm branches and shouts of Hosanna. Now to us, palm branches are probably fairly uh, innocent enough. If you've grown up in church and you've had Palm Sunday, you get little palm branches and you wave them and you celebrate Jesus coming as king to die. That's not the connection anybody in the first century would have made with palm branches. There was a group that claimed the palm branch as their emblem. Does anyone know what group that was in Jesus' day? Zealots. There's four groups that arise between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years, where the Old Testament leaves on a cliffhanger, God's promised to establish his kingdom, he's promised a coming one, and then silence. So the Old Testament is kind of left on this Is God silent? What's going on? What's the rest of the story? And there were different groups that sprung up during that time that said, oh, this is how the kingdom's gonna come. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. Zealots were the group that said, the way God's kingdom is going to come is by violent military overthrow. It's by political revolution. We have to take matters into our own hands. We have to take up the sword, fight against the enemies of God. That's Rome. And they were particularly inspired by the Maccabean Revolt in 168 and 167 BC, so about 200 years before this time. Uh, the, the festival of Hanukkah is celebrated in recognition of, or in commemoration and celebration of the uh, Maccabean Revolt, which is when a group of Jews, uh, the Maccabean family, basically overthrew Rome, went and cleansed the temple of Uh, pagan practices that were being done in the temple of God established a Jewish dynasty which lasted for about a hundred years. And it was this great military conquest. And the zealots said, see, that's a template. That's how we do it. 
If we want to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, we fight by the sword. Pharisees want to like be super holy people. That's great. We should be holy. We should honor God. That's not enough. And the Essenes who think we just retreat out into the desert and wait for God to do something, they're cowards. And the Sadducees who saddle up to Rome and say, well, you know, as long as we kind of play nice with the bullies and we scratch their back and we don't, we kind of turn a blind eye to some of their stuff and we'll kind of be cozy with the powers. Again, they're idolaters. We're the true way. And so they had palm branches as a symbol of Jewish nationalism and as a not so subtle call to arms against the enemies of God. And the zealots also had a war cry. They had a rally cry. Do you know what the rally cry was? Hosanna. 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 Save us. God save us. But if you're a zealot and you've got a palm branch in your hand and you're saying Hosanna, you're not meaning likely what you and I might mean when we sing the song Hosanna in church on Sunday. Because what they mean when they say that is God save us, and we know how you're going to do that. Give us the strength to kill your enemies and to establish your kingdom right now through political overthrow. Save us from the hands of the Romans by giving us might and power to kill them. And they're looking for their Messiah to be the standard bearer for this movement. Now again, not every Jew is part of this zealot movement. But this was a popular one. And in these festivals, zealots took advantage of the density of people to say, this is where we can kind of get the crowds riled up. Zealots were fierce nationalists. And without getting overly political, a slogan like, make Israel great again, would have sold well with them. And waving a palm branch you know, that culture would have been maybe as politically, as politically incendiary as wearing a red mega hat is in some places in the States. These were symbols in a Jewish context for, not for spiritual truths, but for direct military ground level action. And the zealots were calling on all God's people to say, if you're with God, if you're on God's side, you gotta be willing to take up the sword and do what it takes. And when the Messiah comes, when, because when the Messiah comes, he's gonna lead us into battle. Don't be one of those cowardly Jews who doesn't pick up a sword and fight with him. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's doing that in part because he understands what the people expect. He understands what they want. It's why Jesus cries over Jerusalem in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. When Jesus looks at the city and he weeps because he says, if you only knew the things that made for peace, but they're hidden from you, right? One person that I was reading this week said, you know, Jesus doesn't cry over the people who didn't come to greet him. He's crying just as much about the people who did greet him because they're like, oh, this is it. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, son of Joseph, who's going to come and liberate us. We've seen his miracle-working power 
Gospel of John, I think, uh, is it John and Luke, John and Mark, I think, emphasize that people come because of the signs that Jesus has done. This guy's powerful. In John's gospel, he's just raised the dead. Raising people from the dead can be a pretty advantageous uh, trick if you're leading a military revolt. It's nice to have someone who can do that on your side. Jesus knows that people want him to be a conquering deliverer who are gonna kill all the bad guys, set up Israel as the number one nation in terms of power and prosperity. And when Jesus comes in a donkey, likely, even though the scripture tells us it's to fulfill, Jesus does it to fulfill Zechariah 9. Likely, the people don't necessarily make that through line right away. I think there's good evidence because of people's reaction, that they think of the first king who went into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is who? Solomon. So Solomon, in 1 Kings 133, rides a donkey on the day that he's recognized as the next king of Israel. Who was Solomon? Solomon's Israel's king that leads Israel into the most economically prosperous and militarily powerful epoch maybe of its existence. Jesus is the new Solomon. He's gonna be a king like Solomon. He's bringing health and wealth and prosperity and power. This is awesome. But on this Sunday, on this Palm Sunday, and then every day leading up to Good Friday, Jesus is going to display his glory and his goodness by revealing himself to be a very different kind of king than everyone expected. A different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom agenda. This king does not come to kill. This king has come to die. In riding a donkey, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But what does the next verse say? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. And my king will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Jesus isn't just invoking the obvious symbolism of Zechariah 9 with the donkey, but he's also wanting the people and hoping they'll connect that to, I come as a different kind of king. I'm not going to establish my kingdom through bloodshed. All the mechanisms of war, chariots, war horses, battle bows, I'm gonna break them. These don't have a place in my kingdom. And so Jesus is coming as a king and his procession, his welcome, he wants it to be understood as a procession towards peace and not violence. He's coming to establish a rule that isn't based on coercive power, but it's on righteousness and justice and forgiveness and reconciliation first between people and God, and then along that love and forgiveness to transform and heal people's fractured relationships at the horizontal level. You know, even a moment's reflection on Palm Sunday brings that scripture into clarity that God's ways are not our ways. And as the week's events unfold, Jesus' followers and the crowds and his fans, they see a really, really different script play out. 
and it bears the marks, all the marks of a king's coronation, but it doesn't unfold in a pageantry of expanding power and domination and glory and honor and wealth the closer that this king comes to establish his rule. As the week unfolds, and as this king claims his rule, he does so in ever more shocking and surprising ways. In Mark 14, we read that the king is anointed. Every king is anointed in some kind of way, and it was certainly this way for the king of Judah and Israel. King is normally anointed by a prophet before his coronation, but Jesus is anointed not by a prophet, not by a established member of the religious hierarchy, but by a woman, a woman who knew that her king must die and a woman who understood the true nature of this king. We read, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my head beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Next, the king hosts a banquet. For Jesus, it's not large and elaborate. It's very small and intimate. It's meager and it's simple. In Mark 14, we read that when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12, and while they were eating, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Moving further into the week, the king is crowned. This king is given a crown. It's not a crown of gold or silver. No jewels or gems adorn it. It's a crown of thorns. And when this king is hailed as king and is celebrated as a king, instead of heaping praise and glory upon him, they beat Jesus and they spit on him. And they bow the knee to this king, but they do it in degrading mockery. In Mark 15, we read that the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. And then the king is enthroned. Every king comes to their throne and it's usually a place that is high and lifted up. And it's meant to serve as a symbol of the king's authority and power and dominance. But this king is gonna come to a very different throne. It's not a throne of safety, 
It's not a throne where he's going to receive adulation. It's a throne that was used by the Romans as an instrument of terror and torture and as a symbol of humiliation and powerlessness to those who thought that they could stand against Rome's might and its dominance. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. If you come back to Palm Sunday and all those people and the palm branches and the hosannas and the shaking, the vibrations and the energy and the anticipation and the expectation, God's people thought they knew the kind of king they were welcoming. They kind of, they, they thought they knew the kind of king they were getting. It was a king of power and wealth and majesty and glory that was going to move them into a new age where they were going to overthrow the shackles of Rome and reestablish themselves and then live taking in all the privileges that being on God's side accrues to one's personhood. But by Friday afternoon, this king looks like a total failure. There's no power here. There's no wealth. There's no glory. There's plenty of shame. What nation on earth would envy a king like that? Who would envy such a king? It's often really difficult to see the power of God at work in your life because it looks so different from what you're expecting it to look like. We all have a template in our mind's eye that if God really loved me, if God was really with me, if God's power was at work in my life, if God was really doing something powerful in and through me and for me, it would look like this. And I don't know about you, but for me, it often leans into a vision where I'm assuming well, won't it lead to me becoming more powerful and more influential and more prosperous and more healthy and more victorious? Holy Week is a really good reminder that God's ways are not always our ways. And it's entirely possible to miss Jesus and what he's doing in your life because you've misunderstood who he is and the greater good that he's trying to facilitate. So I say that to say, if you're at a place in your life where you're like, my expectation, God hasn't met my expectations. I didn't think my life would be like this. I thought if God really cared about me, then this would be different. This person would no longer be a part of my life. This person would be a part of my life. I'd be at this stage, I'd be at this stage of health, I'd be at this stage of prosperity. When our expectations of God aren't being met or they haven't been satisfied, I want you to remember Palm Sunday and I want you to remember the week that followed. Remember that almost everybody misses the glory and power of Jesus 
because they didn't have the eyes of faith to see him. They wanted so badly for the Messiah to look like this, to be like this, and to accomplish this. And God does something even deeper and more powerful. But even in the midst of doing that for their sake, we see as the week progresses, tons of people being like, oh, that's the agenda? I'm out, see ya. Not making my life better? See ya. Oh, he's not gonna slit the throat of every Roman authority? Oh, never mind. I came here for the revolution. I don't know if I came for redemption. But that Sunday, the world's true king did enter Jerusalem. The world's true king did receive an anointing. The king did participate in a banquet. The king did receive a crown. The true king was enthroned. But it wasn't a worldly king who came with an agenda to kill and bring revolution. It was, a, it was heaven's king who came with an agenda to die, to bring eternal salvation. As I close, there's one more dimension of Jesus' entry into the city that probably should have signaled to people <laughs> that Jesus was a different kind of king with a different kingdom agenda, but it didn't. It didn't connect with them, or at least not with probably most. We know the Sunday is Palm Sunday, right? But this Sunday had different significance in a first century context. Before it was Palm Sunday, sorry, before it was Palm Sunday, do you know what it was? Does anyone know? It was Lamb Selection Sunday. Four days before Passover, you go to the temple, you select a lamb, and you hold it with your family for four days. And part of the crowds on Sunday is because part of their agenda for being in Jerusalem on Sunday is to select a lamb for their family to celebrate the Passover meal later in the week. So these Jewish families are there to select a pure, spotless lamb that's gonna be eaten as part of their Passover celebration. Every lamb slain as part of the Passover was a tangible reminder that the way God saves his people is through blood and through sacrifice. And so there's a, some, some amazing poetic dissonance as you see Jesus moving into the city because as he does so, as he enters Jerusalem very intentionally on Lamb Selection Sunday, while a city is intent on securing a lamb for their Passover celebration, you know, the subtext, right, is Jesus in a sense saying, are you going to select me? Have you selected this Lamb of God as your own? Have you made a way in your life for this king? Because there is none like him. The Lamb of God came to take away the sins of the world, including yours, so that you could be rescued and redeemed from sin's power and death's bondage, both in this life and in the life to come. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today would be a very good day to bend the knee to Jesus and recognize his true power, his true glory, his true greatness, 
Today would be a very good day to make way for the king. Let's pray. Jesus, we can so easily slip into wanting you to fulfill our agenda. But you have your own agenda, and it's so much better than ours, God. And when we submit ours to yours, the foolhardiness and the selfishness and the brokenness and the entrapment, entanglements of, that our own agendas cause can be burned away. And we can be liberated into a new kind of life and a new freedom, but only if we follow you as our king. Show us what that means, God. For those of us, those of us who haven't chosen you, reveal yourself to those people, God. And for those of us who have, help this holy week to be one where we encounter your power and glory in a fresh and new way. For your name's sake, worthy is the Lamb. Amen.